Welcome to episode 109 of the Swampflix podcast. My name is Brandon Lede. And I'm Brittany Lombas. And we are recording once again in two separate locations in New Orleans, Louisiana. Uh, and this is the podcast version of the movie review website, Swampflix. Yep, it is. Well, I guess during this like stay at home record over Skype period, I have to start the conversation just by asking, how are you? Are you doing okay? <laughs> you know, I'm doing fine. I don't know what's going on with me. Like, I'm okay. But like, I um, I cut my hair with fabric scissors last night. Oh, shit. <laughs> but not like an intense haircut. It's just like I've been having like these really fried split ends. And I was just like, you know, when you're a kid and you're like, what happens when I push this button? Or what if I like do this to the car and see what happens like you think of all the stupid stuff i went back into that and i was like what happens if i use these fabric scissors to cut the little ends of my hair off i think they call that boredom okay <laughs> no that's <laughs> i think that's you're what, bored <laughs> that's what's happening to me you see i was thinking wow i'm so creative <laughs> but no like, i mean just, no i'm bored brandon i'm very bored you have to fill your time uh, yeah somehow it, Exactly. It's just like, it's like I'm, I'm just bored of like my surroundings and like all the crap I'm limited to, but thankful for employment and safety at the same time. So yeah, for sure. But what about yourself? How have you been? Uh, exact same. Yeah. Last episode, I got to get a lot of like, just what my life's been like off my chest talking with James. That's like basically all we talked about the whole episode. <laughs> so everything since then has just been, you know, more of the same. Nothing's really changed. Just kind of bored and trying to fill my time with something constructive on a daily basis it's this weird thing where it's like i'm and you might be feeling this too where it's like you're so bored but like when you're like well this is the time for me to do some constructive stuff like you don't find the energy to do it the mental capacity too like yeah it's just hard to focus on anything right now yeah like i'll just like sit down and like stare at something for like 30 minutes and i don't know what happened (laughs) i will say like one major exception is for this episode the topic that we picked to talk about was like really exciting to me and i went overboard and watched a bunch of extra material on top of it so i became a material girl over the last couple weeks. hell yeah definitely i think it's helped where it's like all we're doing now is just creating like our own universes and like (laughs) i feel like i've been in the like madonna universe like be it through all her music videos on youtube Or, like, all my CDs and cassettes that I've just been hanging on to forever. I've pulled all those bad boys out, and I've been really listening to a lot of it. Yeah, I think sitting down to watch a two-hour YouTube rip of a laser disc of a Madonna concert this week was, like, really the apex of me obsessing over, like, one topic. (laughs) (laughs) Whoa. (laughs) Yeah. Amazing. Well, there will be plenty more Madonna talk to come, because that's pretty much all we're doing all episode. Have you had time to watch any other movies besides the Madonna flicks that we've assigned ourselves? <laughs> um, yeah, actually, I have. I've watched a couple of things. The coolest thing I think that I've watched, there's a, a puppet film production company called Classics in Miniature. And they produced about like eight films where the films take place on these like handcrafted miniature sets and yes yeah it's all like handmade marionettes which i love i love 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 marionettes and puppetry and miniatures so this has just been like oh i was like drooling the whole time 
the, all the movies are about like heroes or classic literature. The one that I watched was The Legend of Joan of Arc, done through just pure marionettes, which was amazing. And the guy who did produce it, who's also a, a, a big puppet master in the puppet world, is Stephen Ritz Barr. <laughs> so, and he actually did assist with producing all eight of the movies that came out from Classics of Miniature. So, yeah, well, The Legend of Joan of Arc, it's just this marionette action film. I haven't seen anything quite <laughs> like it, but I, I love marionette shows. So when I went on my trip to Prague, like what was it, like two years ago, I saw Don Giovanni done it with just marionettes <laughs> and it was so much fun. And this reminded me a lot of that where it's crazy how all of these like little hand carved puppets can convey like emotion and you know just action and all this insanity it, it's just so awesome like it's almost like I don't know it heightens the experience a little bit because it's like you're you're not watching people you're watching puppets you know interact with each other and it's all like very powerful stories and it's just done so well like there's um, the camera angles will like do this great job of like focusing on like the puppet hands, like while they're like, you know, going to war and they're throwing spears and the features of their face. Like when Joan of Arc is like in shackles in prison, like she just looks like she got hit by a bus and making a marionette <laughs> look like that. And like really conveying her, the struggles she was having internally was like super cool. I loved it, and I want to watch all the other seven uh, movies. That is so cool. I've never even heard of that. Right now, they're streaming. Three of them are streaming for free on Vimeo. So if you look up uh, Classics and Miniature on Vim Vimeo, you can watch all the movies. And they're, like, under an hour. Like, I want to say this Joan of Arc was, like, maybe 50 minutes, 45, 50 minutes. But they're awesome. Like you just, oh God, all the detail that goes into these like teensy little sets and these, and it's all like old world style, you know, it's just ugh, it's so comforting and delicious. Are these like contemporary movies? Like they're making them right now or are they from the past? So Joan of Arc, this one was actually 2019. That's very new. So yes, contemporary, they're pretty modern and there's a few of them. So I would totally recommend checking it out. That's awesome. So something else that I watched, <laughs> um, I'm sure you've heard about this. The Netflix original movie, The Other Missy. I don't know that you one. You don't? Okay. No. Well, it's, so you know how Happy Madison is mainly like just making movies for Netflix now? Okay. I already know what this is. <laughs> oh. <laughs> I didn't know the title, but yeah, <laughs> I really like the uh, star of this one. I think she's hilarious. Yes. Which is essentially all I'm going to talk about. So the movie I didn't have high expectations. I'm like, okay, this is a Netflix Happy Madison film. It's not going to be amazing. There's probably going to be some offensive stuff in it. Like, but I'm going to watch it because what else do we have to do right now? Right? Right. Brandon, I laughed so fucking hard and so much that I like surprised myself. Like wow. I was like laughing out loud and almost in tears at some parts. And then I'm like, while that's happening, I'm having this out-of-body experience. And it's like, Brittany, who are you? You know, I'm kind of like <laughs> reflecting on myself in the moment. But I will say, like, what made me laugh so much was Lauren Lapkus. Like, she was so funny. Her comedy in this film 
I just think it's going to go down in like history for like amazing, powerful, like female comic performances. It was so good. And like, she kept me going. I didn't care about the plot. Like the plot to me was just kind of like, whatever. Like, I just want her to come on the screen and do this awesome, crazy shit she's doing. That's like making me piss my pants. It would be a little weird if David Spade was the one that was making you piss your pants in 2020 (laughs) from laughter. If that would happen, I would just like jump into the Mississippi River. (laughs) I'm like, I am, I'm over all of it. So David Spade, it like kind of reminds me a lot of Bob Dylan in um, Hearts of Fire in this movie. Like, oh no, (laughs) he's just really tired and he like looks older than he really is. Like that's how tired he is in this movie. I think the big issue I had with this at first was like, oh great. So Lauren Lapkus, who's like, you know, a younger woman is like trying to get the attention of fucking David Spade, who's like old enough to be her father. I'm like, oh, not another one of these damn movies, you know? Not that there's anything wrong with that. You know, I have a lot of friends who are in like age gap relationships and it's 100% like true loving and it's 100% real. But I feel like I hate this thing where it's like all these older men can get these younger women without it being an issue or without even trying, you know what I mean? And you don't really see a lot of like older women getting men in films, except for like White Palace and, you know, (laughs) other great cougar movies, which I love. It's weird and it's like overplayed. And I'm like, oh God, this is like gonna be a stupid rom-com. But she was so good that like she carried this whole movie like on her fucking back. Like if she wasn't in this, like maybe the funniest moment in this movie would be Rob Schneider punching a shark in the face, which is not funny at all. So, you know what I mean? Like she was like the star of this show, even though like she's trying to like get in this relationship with David Spade and the way that it, I should probably kind of explain the plot a little bit. Well, it starts off with a blind date where Lauren Lapkus and David Spade are on a blind date and she's sort of like portrayed as this like date from hell like she's really loud like she reminds me a lot of uh barbara streisand's character in what's up doc just like pure chaos just chaos right um and then he's like got ptsd from this date with her and it's like months later and he meets this woman at an airport played by molly sims so she's like model-esque and has all these traits that you know our society has put as being like the ultimate female right so he meets her at the airport. They almost have sex in a closet and then it doesn't happen. And, but she, he gets her number and then a few weeks pass and his like office, they're going on a trip, like some kind of business trip, like whatever office goes on like business trips to Hawaii. Like I need to work there because that's insane, but that's what happens. And he's like, I'm going to invite Missy. So Missy's the name of both Lauren Lapkus and Molly Sims's character. So he texts who he thinks is Molly Sims to go on this trip and like invites her and stuff. And it ends up being Lauren Lapkus. It's the wrong Missy. The wrong Missy. That's where you get the title. And the whole time he's like, I made a huge mistake. Like she's terrorizing everything. She's going to make me lose my job. She's embarrassing me. And slowly, of course, like it's a rom-com. So he starts to kind of fall for her quirky ways and all that stupid shit. But like, I don't think any of that really matters. It's just having fun watching Lauren Lapkus like be a fucking genius. And if anything comes from this movie, like, I really hope that 
this like shoots her career off a little bit. Like I really hope she gets picked up for like other major roles and comedies because she is so funny. I hope that's the one good thing that comes from the wrong Missy. Yeah, I mostly just know her from Comedy Bang Bang, which is not like mainstream culture, really. Like it's a very popular podcast, but it's not like my mom would know who she is or something. Most of the other stuff I think I've seen her in is she was one of the cops in like Orange is the New Black. Very minor role. And she was also in in the Between Two Ferns movie. But that's Comedy Bang Bang people all over that movie. Exactly. So I would 100% recommend watching it. Just don't expect like to be blown away by everybody else because you're not. It's kind of uh, interesting as like an age gap thing that probably she looks up to like Adam Sandler and David Spade and Rob Schneider, like that era of like comedians. Because she's around our age. You would think like those are the people she grew up with. So right. it is gross that people keep getting cast that way. But um, in her case, it seems like kind of like a fun opportunity to like act like a complete fool in front of David Spade in Hawaii for a month, you know? I feel like she was having a lot of fun with it. And they all were. Like there was a really good vibe going on between all the actors. She's an improv expert. So I'm sure she had a blast just bouncing ideas off the walls. I I definitely want to check that out just for her. Yeah. So I liked it. I laughed harder for that than anything I've seen this year. So go for it um (laughs) and just i slightly want to touch on this other movie i saw because it was weird but in a family-friendly way so i watched a movie called the boy with the green hair from 1948 so it's pretty old and it's in color so there weren't that many films i think like in color at that time but it's basically about this boy who's like a war orphan And he finds himself bald at a police station. And there's like a psychologist that's talking to him, like trying to figure out who he is, why he's here. And then he like starts telling this child psychologist like his story. And he like incorporates like fantasy into reality as he's telling the story. So a lot of the movie is just him explaining like how he got here. And essentially like both of his parents died in the war He's a war orphan. He's bouncing around from home to home until he settles into a foster home with this older Irishman named Gramp. And while he's at school, he doesn't like come to terms that his parents are dead because of the war. And he's an orphan. Um, And the, the school's doing some kind of like activity where they're helping war orphans in like Europe. And they're like, yeah, you're a war orphan. He's like, no, I'm not. And then he comes to the the realization that he is. And he goes home kind of like depressed-ish and stressed out. And then he uh, he wakes up with lime green hair. Um, And then like the whole town is like freaked out by it. The kids make fun of him. All the adults in the town are like, you need to shave your head because everyone thinks that the milk from the milkman made your hair turn green. So he's losing business because of you, kid. So they torment him until he shaves his head. And so essentially, like, he later learns that his hair was green because he has to carry this message around to the world to let them know the impact that war has on children. So this movie is just kind of like a it's a family film and a fun fantasy type way (laughs) to um, look at the dark impacts that war had. And has on the lives of children. So it was kind of like, whoa, got, you know, that that really dark undertone the entire time uh, was kind of intense. But it was it was cute. I'm glad I watched it. How'd you stumble upon that? Like, why'd you decide to watch that? 
I have the Criterion Channel app and they'll do these Saturday matinee recommendations. And it's usually like movies like that. Like there's like The Court Jester and all this other kind of type movies. And that was one of them. So I'm like, Very oh cool. yeah, that sounds cool. Let me watch it. Whatever. I thought it was going to be like sci-fi, but it wasn't. <laughs> It was just sad. I love when you have like something that could just recommend uh, movies to you. Yeah. Kind of just like the way we used to just catch movies on cable back in the day. I love that because what happens is now like we have, I love that we have so much at our fingertips, but I'll look for a movie and then I start making a watch list instead, instead of like watching the movie. So I'm like, just someone tell me what to watch. Damn it. (laughs) So, but yeah, those are like three pretty cool movies that I've watched lately. But what about you? What have you been watching? Well, I should mention that you also lent me your login credentials for the Criterion channel. So I poked around on there a little bit. Oh, yeah. Um, recently good. as well. I discovered one from Derek Jarman from 1978 called Jubilee on there. Oh. And it instantly shot up as like, a movie I love like I, I could watch this probably two or three more times and be like oh this is one of my favorite movies really and I did not expect that the only other Derek Jarman movie I saw was from like the early 90s and it was this really sad movie about AIDS but it was done in this like experimental art way where the scenes didn't really progress in any kind of narrative it was just like weird sketches mostly around his famous house on the like shore in england it's this like really bare garden that he had made at his house that's like still a cultural landmark especially for like gay and artist weirdos in britain i don't know anything about any of this and i am intrigued he's like a photographer and like a experimental filmmaker and he's like friends he was friends with tilda swinton when he was alive um unfortunately he died she's in the garden the, the 90s one i just mentioned but so when i watched jubilee i was kind of expecting since it was in the 70s for it to be even more experimental and like even weirder but it turned out to have kind of a plot it's still very messy and the story doesn't matter that much but just the fact that it had like characters and like linear progression of events was like a huge weight off of my shoulders like it was a lot easier to just watch because of that Basically, the story is that Queen Elizabeth I asks her alchemist to entertain her with a vision of the future. So this is 1978. This is a year after punk broke. And the vision of the future that the alchemist conjures is late 70s punk in England. Oh. (laughs) It's like the near future of that. So it's like after a society has crumbled and there's no art left except for Top of the Pops and the Eurovision Song Contest. And all the, like, pop bands have been replaced with, like, Susie and the Banshees and the Slits and Adam Ant and all these, like, punk performers. The look of it, even though it's very British punk, it reminds me a lot of Desperate Living, which came out, I think, the year before. So it's just this, like, Mortville version of London where everything is trashed and decimated and there's no art and no culture and everything's just very grim. And you have this like costume drama, time travel thing in the background where Queen Elizabeth is like roaming the streets of London and watching all these like female rebels, kind of like the citizens of Mortville, just terrorizing people and trying not to get, get executed <laughs> by the cops. Is she is uh, Queen Elizabeth like giving off some Queen Carlotta energy? No, she's just like a quiet observer. Okay. But the punks themselves have this sort of like fascist, nihilistic way of going about their days where they're like kidnap men and burn things to the ground and, and sort of like worship fascist leaders of the past like there's some like weird hitler 
iconography that's conjured in it. Um, I could not tell you exactly what he was trying to say with any of this stuff, but it does like sort of capture the the late seventies punk scene in England um, in this like really grim, exciting way. It's just like a world I could live in forever, even though it is like just nasty. <laughs> And it's called Jubilee, which makes it sound like a really fun party, even though it's like a really grim, futureless, nihilistic art experiment. Isn't the Jubilee is um, like a celebration of like when the queen makes a certain amount of years as being queen? I think so. Yeah, because yeah, when I went to London, it was the like gold Jubilee or something or diamond diamond Jubilee. Like every so couple of years, like it's a different level. Like, I don't know what's next. <laughs> She hasn't died yet, so I'm assuming platinum <laughs> or something. <laughs> like, uh, so that's pretty cool. That sounds really awesome. I would probably love that. Yeah, and it's on the Criterion channel. Awesome. They have such good like hidden gems on there. Like at first, I thought it was just going to be like all the Criterion movies in one place, but it's so much more than that. Where first of all, like not all the Criterion films are on there, just like a chunk of them. Right. But they also procure like really other good shit. Sounds like, you know, this is something like that. And the ones they don't have, it feels like Canopy fills in a lot of those gaps. Not all of them, but a lot of them. Right, right. Which is cool. But, you know, I haven't only been watching weird, hard-to-follow art movies. I've been watching a lot of mainstream, easy-to-digest stuff for obvious reasons. (laughs) We recently watched Chicago, which I hadn't seen since the early 2000s. And it holds up really well. It's so good. Especially after watching Cabaret for the first time recently. Oh. It felt really good to revisit that. I love Chicago. Um, and you know what? I haven't... When it came out, I must have been in like junior high or high school maybe. I just remember being very young and like disturbingly obsessed with it. And I was friends with like theater kids, even though I wasn't into theater, like in theater. And I just remember like everybody would sing Mr. Cellophane before like the <laughs> bell would ring. <laughs> I was definitely like a new metal shithead around the time that came out uh, in 2002. <laughs> and I still liked it. Like I was into it, even though that like fossey burlesque aesthetic is not like new metal at all. <laughs> so that speaks a little bit to how like accessible it is. But something that jumped out to me watching it recently was just like, it reminded me so much of a John Waters story template, which is not something I expected. But James and I last episode talked about that Nicole Kidman movie to die for where she like kills her husband and gets off on like the fame from being in tabloids from that. Mm -hmm. And I was not used to seeing that in a lot of mainstream movies, like women who love being celebrities for being criminals, Um, except for in John Waters stuff. Like that is like almost every divine character is like bragging to the press about how much of a, you know, ruthless killer you are. And then Chicago is that same story. Mm -hmm. Like it's these two women competing to see, how much press they can drum up from jail for their like crimes of passion that they committed when they were nightclub singers and free. That just really took me by surprise that I was like looking for these like mainstream movies where women brag about being cold hearted killers (laughs) in the press and like really love the fame of it um, in that divine kind of way. And Chicago seemed like a pretty unlikely place to find that, but the whole movie is that and it was just like a lot of fun to watch rewatch it in that context yeah i definitely want to rewatch that because you have when you had made a post about it i was like wow i, I haven't seen that in a very long time and i kind of like 
miss seeing plays and musicals in real life. <laughs> so I'm, I'm kind of like, you know, going back into like, you know, musical films that are actual Broadway productions. So uh, Chicago is a major one for sure. Actually, one of my my top Real Housewives, she's a Real Housewife of Beverly Hills, and her name is Erica Jane. Um, and she is, well, I don't know what's happening with it now, but she was cast as Roxy Hart for uh, the last Chicago Broadway season, which was supposed to be like around this time. So I don't know if they'll like, Ooh. yeah, she's fabulous. So I don't know if they'll like still keep her on for like another season or something because I will go into debt to go to New York and see her in <laughs> Chicago. <laughs> so maybe I, I should just watch it and get it out of my system and save myself the unnecessary expense. <laughs> and I think I watched another movie that um, seems very much up your alley. For the first time, I watched The Devil Wears Prada from 2006. <laughs> You're not going to Paris. Oh my God. And then Emily Blunt cries. <laughs> I love Meryl Streep in that movie so much. I'm kind of glad I waited to see it because I didn't know much of like the fashion industry terminology and you know politics. Like I, I don't think I would have known who Anna Wintour was when this movie came out. But you're watching all that Project Runway. I think I'm hitting a wall with Project Runway. I finally got to this like season 11 I think or 12 and Michael Kors isn't on the show anymore and I just miss his jokes uh, so much <laughs> that I think I'm done. It kind of dies out when like there's no michael kors they i'm i'm watching all stars right now and they have isaac mizrahi and he's kind of fun he's not he's no michael kors and there's no tim gunn in there oof but the fashion's sick as shit so it's fun to watch for that but yeah i get what you're saying i didn't realize like how much he was making me laugh every episode but he really was like a very like essential piece to that puzzle yeah. i miss him already he had real good insults for the shit that would come down the runway and i loved it <laughs> But this was a good cap off to watching all that Project Runway. I watched probably about 10 seasons or so over the past couple months. Yeah. So you get Meryl Streep playing this like auteur tyrant who has like this entire office like terrified of her. And she barely ever speaks above a whisper. Like she barely ever lifts a finger really. And she's like running the entire fashion industry from her Runway magazine office. It's like a fake version of Vogue. Mm -hmm. And... What really stood out to me was this clip that Cece had actually played for me before, like a few years ago, but like it actually makes more sense to me now. It's that one string of insults when Anne Hathaway, who plays this like journalist wannabe kind of academic who's kind of turning up her nose at fashion is like being beneath her. She kind of scoffs at something that Meryl Streep says in a meeting and Streep stops the meeting dead and just gives her this like really long monologue about how she may think that fashion has nothing to do with her everyday life, but it's actually like commanding all these decisions and she just doesn't notice it. And she like explains how like runway couture design and like high art fashion trickles down to like ready to wear off the rack clothes, whether or not that Anne Hathaway like notices that. And it's kind of built like a rom-com where Anne Hathaway has to like choose between these two dudes. But for the most part, the movie is like her falling in and out of love with Meryl Streep's character and like falling in and out of love with like fashion and learning how to use that couture artistry for like better confidence and more power. And I was just thought it was a really cool variation on the rom-com template. 
it very much feels like a rom-com even though like the love story aspect of it does not matter at all would you consider meryl streep to be somewhat of a psycho bitty if so she's very like contained and controlled for a psycho bitty you know we always kind of discuss like what makes a psycho bitty a psycho bitty Mm -hmm. and like she has the attitude where like i don't know like there's so many drag show reenactments of like the you know you have no style oh that wasn't a question you know (laughs) that whole conversation and just like you know her being just like kind of mean and i buy it and she has the entire office like trembling terrified of her even though she is like making these quiet motions oh yeah and something else that stuck out to me in the devil wears prada is that they sprung for two madonna songs including vogue so they could get the vogue magazine reference like in the film without you know violating any uh (laughs) libel claims they could possibly have and i don't think you ever really hear madonna especially classic era madonna like that in movies it's a really expensive splurge right so i was surprised by that and delighted especially since we've been watching and listening to so much madonna over the past (laughs) couple weeks (laughs) she's everywhere yes (laughs) we're going to talk about three madonna movies for the rest of the episode and specifically i think we're talking about like one very iconic era of madonna's career so there's a lot to get into yes and all that's coming up to you right right now. now my show is not a conventional rock show but a theatrical presentation of my music and like theater it asks questions provokes thoughts and takes you on an emotional journey portraying good and bad light and dark joy and sorrow redemption and salvation i do not endorse a way of life but describe one and the audience is left to make its own decisions and judgments and now it's time for our movie of the minute this is where hosts of the show bounce back and forth recommending films to each other it was my turn to pick this episode and i wanted to tackle this madonna tell-all documentary from the early 90s called truth or dare Uh, it's also called in bed with madonna in like some foreign markets too which is kind of a funny variation of the title i think this jumped out at me partly because on this season of rupaul's drag race that's wrapping up they did this like madonna rusical oh wow they did like a music review musical theater roundup of like madonna songs that sounds freaking fantastic and i got like emotional during the end of it there's this like sort of spoof of the rap in vogue and instead of like doing references to old hollywood starlets like rita hayworth and marlena dietrich instead it's these like references to all of madonna's achievements especially like in the early 90s and it really like got to me just i feel like i grew up with her as one of the first like pop music stars i was aware of Mm -hmm. she was insanely popular when i was a kid and I think her like flagrant sexuality and especially like in the erotica era that like kink iconography she was putting in her music videos like really spoke to me and like kind of defined my tastes in a lot of ways. Mm -hmm. Do you have that same experience with like early 90s Madonna or you're a few years younger than me so I don't know if that like really hits you in the same way. Like I have constantly had like Madonna in my musical library since like day one where You know, my mom is a Madonna fan. She was more so of like a Madonna 80s fan. So she would listen to the Like a Virgin album a lot. So I would listen to that a lot where um, 
I love the song Angel <laughs> because of mm-hmm. that. You're an angel. Yeah, that was like one of my favorites as a kid. And it's just sort of like Madonna like still produces music till this day and she hasn't stopped. So every couple of years, I was like, you know, I would grow into this different stage in life. I would have like a Madonna album that would be new and fresh that I was obsessed with. You know, when she came out with her um, late 90s, early 2000s, where she had like, you know, Frozen, Love Don't Live Here Anymore. And then she kind of started going into like the club music. Like Ray of Light? Yes, the Ray of Light years. That's a great way to put it. And then when I was in high school, she came out with the album Confessions on a Dance Floor, which I loved. And um, when I was in college, MDNA came out which was probably one of my favorite albums ever. And she's still like the last album she made, Madam X was great. She's just always there. (laughs) Yeah. That always there quality makes her kind of an enigma to me. Like when a new band comes out that I get really into in the internet era, I would like look them up and see where they're from and like learn things about them. But because she's just been there my whole life, I never really investigated who she was as a person. I didn't know until watching these movies that her real like Christian given name is Madonna. I thought that was a stage name that she chose to be provocative. I didn't realize that was like her first name. (laughs) She was just born to be like this. Right. It's so crazy, though, how like she's still so relevant and her music is current and the way she produces her music too is just like she has a way of keeping it with like the way modern music is so she can get fans of younger generations to like her music but she still kind of has her own unique touch to where she doesn't lose her dedicated older fans and it's just this crazy voodoo magic that you don't really see a lot of artists being able to accomplish. The thing with Truth or Dare, the thing that like really distinguishes it is in how she is so self-aware that what she's doing is crafting an image and being like an icon for a generation of kids. One of the first things you see in the movie is her on stage, like talking about like levels and sounds and her monitors and like really crafting what she looks and sounds like for the crowd. And the rest of the movie is that, like, it's her constantly tweaking how people are looking at and hearing her so that the artistry is her as a person. Right. Like, it's her own creation. I was blown away just, like, how you were talking about, like, that beginning portion of the movie and you see, like, her in control of everything. And she has so much control over herself and, like, the way she's presented that it's it just makes her art even, like... I don't know, it just brings it to an even higher level. I want to cut all the way to the end of the movie when they're playing the titular truth or dare game, which is like staged for the camera and fake as fuck. <laughs> One of the truths she answers when she's in bed with her backup dancers is she says, um, I know I'm not the best singer in the world and I know I'm not the best dancer in the world. I'm not interested in being either of those things. What I want to do is push people's buttons and be provocative and like be a political like thorn in america's side (laughs) and i think that's what this movie is is like a document of her doing that at her height of her like provocative powers that's like what when people think of madonna too it's like her provocativeness and do you remember when she came here for her mdna tour and she came to new orleans no i definitely would have been tapped out around that time 
I was probably listening to some obscure bullshit indie music <laughs> that I couldn't even tell you what was called, you know, now. So I was there. Um, it was probably like the most I ever spent on like a ticket that wasn't in an awesome seat, <laughs> but it was worth every penny. Um, I went with my mom and my cousin and it was so interesting, like observing the crowd and how it was like lots of different generations there. And a lot of people got offended and people actually left her show. <laughs> yeah. Why would you expect to come to a Madonna show and like get pissy about something she did? Like this is what she does. So what happened was like she came out and she did like a very slow and exotic performance to like a virgin on piano where she like was wearing a thong and her ass was just out for everyone to see and it looked phenomenal um so that didn't offend people what offended people is she took off like her jacket and she had free pussy riot written across her back because this was the time that like pussy riot was imprisoned yeah <laughs> and she was like literally dedicated like her, the middle part of her show to like getting people to vote for Obama. <laughs> and a lot of like that, you know, conservative like Metairie crowd just started booing her. And she was like, y'all can fuck off. <laughs> this is my fucking show. And like people left <laughs> and I was just screaming <laughs> with like pure joy. And um, when I went back to work the next day, one of my coworkers who's super conservative she was like, yeah, I left the show and she was like telling me that we need to vote for Obama. Like she doesn't need to make it political and all this kind of stuff. And I'm just like, if you know Madonna, she's very political. She's very outspoken. Like, why would you get pissed off for that? Like, how can you not expect that when you go to her show? So I felt a lot of that in Truth or Dare. She's going to do what she's going to do. And she's not going to cater to others, you know? Yeah, there's that sequence in this movie where she is threatened with being arrested if she performs her Like a Virgin number, where she masturbates on a giant fake bed while her uh, backup dancers wear these, like, cone bras. She's, like, writhing and, like, putting her hand in her pants. <laughs> right, the backup dancer cone bras <laughs> were, like, the worst knockoffs of, like, Gautier <laughs> you've ever seen. But it's awesome. Well, those aren't knockoffs. Those are actual Gautier outfits. He designed all the outfits for the show. You're kidding, dumbass. I thought he just did hers. I'm pretty sure he, he designed all the costumes for the tour that this is a documentary of. Well, this is me being so um, Michael Kors about the whole dance thing. <laughs> where I'm like, look at these uh, shitty Gautier style bras. <laughs> yeah. Okay. Well, the first thing you see her come out in is like the classic Gautier get up from Express Yourself where she's like wearing this like pinstripe business suit. Yes, with her monocle. She's fully clothed. So little of her skin is showing, but she's wearing this like full bodice like lingerie set on top of the pinstripe suit and is so lewd somehow, even though like very little of her flesh is showing, which is great. Well, that's like the thing too, where it's like that iconic like Gautier, like, you know, lingerie piece. Like it's not very revealing, but it's just mm -mm. the way that it's like constructed that it's like, it looks worse than if somebody was naked. Like it's more provocative. Yeah. You cannot stop looking at her crotch. Exactly. <laughs> Partly because she keeps touching it. She keeps like writhing on the stage, like on her knees touching herself while she's singing express yourself which is like really fun yeah she's expressing herself damn it <laughs> <laughs> and to settle the story too uh the toronto police ended up choosing not to arrest her because it, it would have been bad publicity for them because she was allowed to do that same number all across the world in places like japan and italy and 
everywhere else and no one bothered to arrest her. So Canada didn't really want that as like a PR nightmare. But she loved it. She wanted the press and the attention. She heard they were there to like arrest her for masturbating or fake masturbating. And what she decided to do was do it more and do it more flagrantly because she knew if she got arrested, it would be better publicity. (laughs) And that's kind of this whole movie. She's like putting her sexuality out in the world, in your face. Very, like, unapologetically. Yeah, when I say this is, like, the height of her powers in that way, like, this is right after the Like a Prayer video came out and got banned. It was, like, a um, huge deal. Brandon, so let me just say this. That's my favorite Madonna song. Oh, damn. When she performed it for the MDNA tour, I literally felt like I was levitating (laughs) in, the like, the arena. Like, that music video, I have been obsessed, obsessed with it since I was like a kid, like just something about it. It's like a movie. It's just like this like lifetime style movie. And you know, I like to always throw things back to a housewife. So (laughs) Leon plays the saint that she is like having that relationship with in the like a prayer video. His name, I can't think of his last name, but his first name is Leon. And he was a significant other and the father of Miss Cynthia Bailey's child. And Cynthia Bailey is a real housewife of Atlanta. So (laughs) housewives are just connected to everything. I think that Vogue might be my favorite Madonna song. And that also factors in here very heavily. It was a leftover from the Like a Prayer album that she stuck onto the Dick Tracy soundtrack. (laughs) Yes. (laughs) I was listening to the album the other day just because I happen to own it. And all of the songs are these like very cheesy, like Vegas showgirl type numbers. Very jazzy things. (laughs) Oh, God. It's remarkably corny. And then the final track on the album is Vogue. And it has nothing to do with anything else. It's cashing in on the ballroom gay subculture of New York City at the time. And this documentary, Truth or Dare, came out the same year as Paris is Burning, which was specifically about that ball culture. But, you know, whereas Paris is Burning is this, like, cult film, I would call it. It mm-hmm. means a lot to a sort of small number of people. Truth or Dare actually was the top grossing documentary of all time until Fahrenheit 9-11. Like, it was a You're kidding. major deal. I had no idea. I didn't realize this was such like a well-seen film and well-reviewed for one of her movies. Usually her movies get panned by critics, but people liked this one. It wasn't um, a swept away. (laughs) Right, right. Or Shanghai Surprise, which I think was her first major bomb. I like them all. (laughs) Oh, no. (laughs) Maybe we should do like a terrible Madonna movies episode. And just like hear me talk about how awesome they are. (laughs) Scrape the bottom of the barrel. (laughs) Well, we might be doing a little bit of that later in the episode, too, I think. Perhaps, perhaps, yeah. (laughs) (laughs) So, yeah, she has all these, like, actual voguing ballroom scene kids on stage with her. So she's, like, putting gay subculture of the time on the stage in front of a mainstream audience across the world, which is provocative in its own way. And then right after this period is when her sex book comes out, and then she does a couple erotic thrillers. Uh, I really think this is like her and her heights of her like button pushing. I don't think she ever offended people as much as she did at this time. Wait, when did her erotica album come out? That's like 93. So yeah, that's kind of the era I'm talking about. It's like 90 to 93. I remember like having to like sneak to watch the uh, Justify My Love video. (laughs) That was like the, the big like naughty video that I like tried so hard to like constantly watch. 
and I downloaded on Kaza and it took a week. That meant a lot to me at the time. Like it really, I don't want to say it awakened something in me, but it really like calcified a lot of like things I found like alluring and, you know, naughty as a kid. Just the way she evokes like the S&M, like androgyny side of like sexuality, which I don't think is stuff that she is particularly interested in or involved in in her like everyday life. It's just, I think she likes using this like, mtv worldwide platform to like evoke these like strong images and like grab attention from people i I don't really get the sense that she is like a sexually deviant um kinkster or anything i I get more of the sense that she's like a you know just a cool lady who (laughs) finds this stuff interesting i think she's just being very progressive and just trying to pave the way for people and normalize something that isn't like dirty and shouldn't be like seen that way. And I think that's more so her goal than to be like, look at me and how like sexy I am. And another thing that seems to interest her a lot around this time is movies in general. Like there's a stretch in truth or dare where she wants to meet Antonio Banderas because she thinks he's hot and she loves Pedro Almodovar's movies. She's also dating Warren Beatty at the time. I love the appearances of like the random appearances of Warren Beatty (laughs) throughout this (laughs) Truth or Dare documentary. He very much does not want to be there. No. And he's like so like kind of not mean about it, but just kind of like very dismissive about like the seriousness of the documentary. I would say he's real about it. Like she is trying to pass this off as this like true behind the scenes expose of her on this like tour in 1990 where you can see everything, you know, warts and all, this is what Madonna's like. And he comes in and he's like, this is a weird performance you're putting on. It's a crazy atmosphere. It's not normal. Why is everyone pretending that this is normal and true? And yeah, he's being an asshole about it, but I think not without reason in some ways. Because, yeah, what she's doing is a version of image control. She's not actually showing us what she's like in her downtime. She's more putting on a performance of what she wants us to think she's like oh god it worked for me (laughs) i'm like this is her this is her real she's being so raw and real i mean i think it's like a weird balance right there's got to be some truth in there i mean i think so like i don't know like i i love like watching her like till this day like like social media and her presence and everything and like i don't know like i feel like a lot of the way she is with her kids and her crew now reflects that like how she's very nurturing to like her children as well as like her dancers and they do their cool prayer circle before performances they still do that until this day and usually it's after she has an ice bath (laughs) well it's a uh it's a give and take even there like she is putting these gay kids on this like international stage literally and like promoting their art by making it a part of her art but she's also like exploiting them for her own profit like it was important for there to be this like mainstream gay representation through her but at the same time they didn't want to participate to the level that they were sort of coerced into like i think a couple of the dancers were like really upset by like the on-screen gay kiss during the truth or dare game at the end of the movie Oh, really? Yeah. There's a whole documentary that came out recently, I think in the 2010s, uh, about the dancers specifically and like what their lives were like and how they felt about being part of the movie. I didn't didn't get to watch that. Oh, no. I feel like that would make me very sad and upset to watch. I don't think it's a wholly positive or a wholly negative thing. Okay. I think it's kind of give or take. Yeah. And I think you get that with everything. Like, 
yeah, she's putting on a performance for the camera at all times. And sometimes that takes the shape of her rolling around on her mom's grave and pretending to be really sad about her mom being dead, which I'm sure is somewhat true, but maybe not in the music video segment of this movie where she's right. like in her mom's gravesite. But then there's also the stuff with her drunk brother or her like childhood quote unquote friend that gets really grim and raw. <laughs> That's like, I want you to be the godmother of my child. <laughs> oh, I haven't seen you in years. I was like so embarrassed. I was like, shut up. <laughs> Don't do so it. So dark. Yeah. I feel like truth or dare was pulling me into Madonna's world, even if it was fake partially. You know what I mean? Like just this, this world where sexuality is like sort of fluid and nobody has to like label themselves as something and everyone's just sort of being and there's no boundaries and i love that that is definitely the fantasy she was selling us and she she fucking sold it to me damn it (laughs) i loved rolling around in that i would go into bed with her and that naked guy and i'd probably be fully clothed in pajamas just having a good time like it doesn't matter (laughs) damn it madonna says so So the movie jumps back and forth between those backstage interactions in like this grimy black and white. Uh, It looks like a French new wave film. (laughs) Like she's very much trying to look like, you know, real cinema. And then that's intercut with in color stage performances from the Blonde Ambition tour supporting the Like a Prayer album. And the way that all of these performances are, like, lined up, like, kind of help tell the story. Like, it's just beautiful. Very odd that there's no Like a Prayer in the movie, though, right? The song doesn't appear, which I thought was very weird. Does it not? I don't think so. Well, no, because she does, for the Bond Ambition Tour, like, Like a Prayer, I think, is done either before or after Live to Tail. Because that's Mm -hmm. when she has, like, the church set up on stage. So you're right. Maybe I'm putting that in there. But the part with Live to Tail, which is so good, like I I get goosebumps for that performance. It's flashing back from that performance of like Live to Tail and her like in a confessional and praying to her being interviewed about her thoughts on like freedom of expressionism. And it was just ugh, so good. So good. I did not realize how much that song is basically just a metal song with synths instead of <laughs> guitars. <laughs> yeah, definitely. <laughs> it's so good it plays till this day like if you put it on magic 101.9 it comes on really oh yeah like at least like once every couple of days i can hear either like an 80s ballad metal like you know soft metallica cover of that or like a doom version that's like just slightly slowed down but it's already there it just needs to be like reworked (laughs) it'll burn inside of me yes i love that (laughs) i would love to hear that but yeah like i think yeah the movie's very well edited uh where it cuts back and forth from those performances to these like backstage confessionals and it really does tell a story I think I've seen it done slightly better more recently with that Beyonce movie Homecoming. Yeah. That one is the exact same thing where it's like these on stage in color, high definition performances from Beachella. And then, you know, backstage this like gritty rehearsal footage and like interviews with Beyonce talking about HBCUs and like her other inspirations for the set. And both of them, both Madonna and Beyonce talking just about how tired they are and how this like insane performance that they're putting on is like draining them of their like physicality. Like 
Madonna has no energy to hang out or party. She can barely sing by the end of the tour. Her throat's like destroyed. And it really does feel like, you know, someone giving their all as much as they could possibly like bodily stand to pull this off. And yeah, I think it I think it does come together really interestingly. I mean, I've enjoyed a few Madonna movies here or there, including a few disreputable ones. I can't think of one that I dislike. I really can't. Well, I, you may be a better litmus test for how this one stands up then. Because, I mean, for me, Desperately Seeking Susan is the only, like, really great one that I've seen. And there are a few others that I, like, kind of admire just as entertainment. She's, But she's, like, a good actress, I think. Like, she's... I can't find anything to fault her. Like, maybe some of the movie dialogue and plot might not be as exciting. But I think her in it is good enough. Well, if you like all Madonna movies to one degree or another, where do you think that Truth or Dare stands in that pantheon? Like, how does it rank for you among her work? Truth or Dare would probably be... Because you're right. I mean, she's essentially acting in it, even though, like, some of it, I think, is her reality. I would put it kind of towards the upper middle. Fascinating. (laughs) (laughs) Like, it's really good, but it's more so of, like, a documentary it's a lot of Madonna, but it's also not like focusing on this one central Madonna character. You know what I mean? Like I'm watching Mm -hmm. her where you're kind of, you're kind of jumping all over the place in different parts of like her tour and her life. I I don't know. I liked it. I love, actually I loved it, but yeah, I I have some other favorites that beat it. That's so funny. (laughs) I would probably say this is my favorite movie of hers just because it's a document of her doing what she does best, which is, creating the image of madonna (laughs) and um it's like a very iconic era of her achieving the heights of her artistry there's something that i'm like oh a documentary or like honestly like i haven't seen truth or dare until like we watched it for this so i don't know why but it's like i don't get pulled towards them to watch them but when i watch them i love them you know and then somehow i couldn't get enough and then ended up watching the laser disc rip of uh, the entire Blonde Inhibition <laughs> performance, which included 40 minutes of Dick Tracy oh, just good bullshit. <laughs> just never-ending bullshit. Veronica. Romance. 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 Well, I knew that I was going to cross the line by doing it. I mean, I knew I was getting into a very shady area. I knew I was dealing with a lot of taboo subjects, and I knew that it was going to upset a lot of people, but I felt that it needed to be done, so I did it. To, to what specifically, then? To censorship, to sexual, you know, oppression, to the kind of prejudice that, say, for instance, the gay community has to deal with. I think that minorities needed somebody who's popular that people looked up to to, to, to step forward and say, this is okay. It's okay to feel this way. It's okay to be this way. It's okay to have sexual fantasies. It's okay to be gay. It's okay to be bisexual. It's okay to be all of these things. Because when we are constantly told to be ashamed of our feelings, then everyone's living a lie. And this feeling manifests itself in very unhealthy ways. So it would have made a lot of sense to do Dick Tracy with Truth or Dare, considering that you know a lot of the Blonde Ambition tour was in support of Dick Tracy. It was like a synergizing cross-marketing promotion in some ways. But I think more of what defined Madonna in that like early 90s era was her obsession with sex and just like her sexual exhibitionism. And that included these like two erotic thrillers from the era, 
which is more what we gravitated towards when we were like finding movies to go along with truth or dare mm-hmm. and the one that i was really excited to watch was considered one of the worst films of all time uh, it has like a reputation as being like bottom of the barrel embarrassment for her body of evidence from 1993 and i gotta say just up top i liked this movie i had a lot of fun with it you know i loved it a lot <laughs> like i thought it was like like a legit even if madonna wasn't in it it was a good thriller it had like all the good makings of a good thriller that keeps you entertained. It was so good. It's an erotic thriller from that like fatal attraction, basic instinct era. Where lifetime television for women like owned cable. <laughs> and owned the movie screens. Like it's basically just lifetime movies with like more sex scenes mm-hmm. and like grislier violence. Give the people what they want. <laughs> And in Body of Evidence, Madonna stars as this, like, art gallery owner in Portland uh, with these, like, <laughs> absurdly overplucked eyebrows. She has, like, razor-thin eyebrows and wears, like, a lot of berets because she's artsy. And <laughs> the movie opens on this old, dark mansion in a rainstorm, like a horror film. And there's a man watching a videotape of him having sex with Madonna. And he appears to be dying. <laughs> you see Madonna's nude body within the first minute of this movie. <laughs> it delivers. <laughs> it delivers. Let me tell you something. After Body of Evidence, if you put a bunch of like different women's breasts in a lineup without their face, I could find Madonna's in a second. And her entire like draw here and like the premise of the movie is that she is so sexy that it is lethal. <laughs> I feel like in Body of Evidence, she plays the Madonna that everyone thinks she is in real life. Right. This persona that the public gave her (laughs) being played out, and I love it. And yeah, I mean, part of that persona is that she only does this sexual exhibitionism for money. She has sex with this old man who owns a giant mansion and is, you know, got a lot to give uh, in his will once he passes. And uh, she fucks him to death. He he uh, just dies because his heart can't take how sexy she is. So this is a situation where those age gap relationships are really okay. If there's if there's a large sum of money involved, then go for it. That's the uh, Anna Nicole Smith brand of that dynamic. Oh, another woman that I fucking love. And I could talk about her forever, but I'm not going to keep going. <laughs> and, you know, part of the way that she you know, drives this man supposedly to dying is by like upping the ante of their sexual escapades, mm-hmm. mostly with S&M equipment. There's like nipple clamps and handcuffs and she likes to drip a lot of candle wax on men in this movie. Uh, she loves her some wax and she puts it like on their genitals too. It's so funny watching these like very, I mean, I know it takes place in like Portland, but I feel like the detectives have like, have like these New Jersey and New York demeanors to them, where it's like, oh, what's this? Oh, nipple clamps? So we gonna put that in the evidence bag? Nipple clamps? It's weird, <laughs> but I loved it. Yeah, and the DA, like, literally is the voice of Fat Tony on The Simpsons. <laughs> so he has, like, the most stereotypical Italian accent. <laughs> and they're in Portland, Oregon. <laughs> so odd. And yeah, so she, you know, has to go to trial for this, you know, quote-unquote murder and, you know, defend herself. She was basically saying, like, you know, you people may not like all this kinky stuff that I did with this elderly millionaire, but it was our thing and it was consensual mm-hmm. and I didn't do it to kill him. I, I just really enjoyed having sex with him. And then I couldn't do that anymore because he died. When she talks about that, like their sexual relationship, 
Like she sounds like a sex therapist (laughs) where she's like, (laughs) it's not dirty. It's love. (laughs) It's still making love. It's not dirty. And I'm like, okay, I get it. Yes, I agree. All right, Dr. Ruth. (laughs) Okay. Yeah, exactly. Like she's so Dr. Ruth when she's in court. (laughs) And yeah, so the movie has this like really over the top courtroom drama where Willem Dafoe is her attorney and he's like defending her with these like courtroom theatrics. And there's a super sassy judge that like keeps telling counsel to watch it, watch your tone uh, over and over and over again. Like it's the most absurd version of like a courtroom procedural film. Mm-hmm. And then as the trial's going on, she seduces her attorney, uh, Willem Dafoe, um, and starts introducing him to kink in these like really irresponsible ways that have nothing to do with how people actually, you know, have kinky sex. <laughs> You know, she introduces him to the candle wax trip where she like pours hot candle wax on his chest and then cools it off with champagne and then licks up the like sludge of that. Uh, it's like a really gross way. And it's like, it's also Willem Dafoe, which I just recently watched The Lighthouse and I'm like, he looks the same kind of like he always looks like he could be like really young or really old at the same time because he has this really intense bone structure. So, like, slurping stuff off of his body is just wild. <laughs> and I gotta say, like, he's married to Julianne Moore in this movie. Like, they're, they're the couple that Madonna is, like, breaking up with her, like, lethal sexuality. Mm-hmm. And those two actors are phenomenal actors. Like, there's just no question that they're, like, some of the most talented people alive and acting right now. Right. And they're acting just as, like, flat and sort of monotone that Madonna is here. So, like... To me, I think a lot of the stuff she got made fun of for being, like, melodramatic and, like, inhuman in this movie was, like, a question of how it was written and directed. Because if these, like, really talented actors are giving the same kinds of performance, it feels like it's specifically an aesthetic that was chosen by the director, not, like, something she was doing. It just sucks that she got, like, more criticism than she, like, really deserved. Like, negative criticism about this, where... You know, I think it's like, oh, Madonna in a movie, we're going to go at her 10 times harder than we would at anybody else. Because everyone assumes that, you know, people who are like musicians can't act. They're just underestimating her damn talent. (laughs) And it pisses me off. I thought she was really funny in this. I don't know if that was the intent, but just like her matter of factness combined with this like sort of femme fatale like noir throwback yes. character she was playing like she gives like really this fun. good like diva noir vibe like i just want to be able to have a real life scenario where i can just like turn my head and go you know i never know why men lie but they do men lie <laughs> all her lines are just so good <laughs> she needed a cigarette she needed a cigarette <laughs> for a lot of scenes, but um, I'm okay without her having it. But, oh, God. I thought the way her delivery was just so confident. Every line she said, it was just very bold. And to me, like, it fits right in with, like, erotic thrillers of the era. Mm-hmm. Like, it just really feels like nothing exceptional within the genre outside of her performance and maybe the details of a few of the sex scenes. But, like, for this to have the reputation as one of the worst films of all time just feels really odd to me because it doesn't really stand out as anything too embarrassing. Exactly. if Like you said, like, it fits the mold of, like, other erotic thrillers. It doesn't do anything wrong. It does everything it should be doing. So, whatever. People are just going to complain about shit no matter what. So, whatever. 
Do you have a favorite sex scene in this movie? Because there are a lot to choose from. First of all, I love her floating house. (laughs) Her lifestyle, just being like a sex goddess and having a floating home in Portland, Oregon, and like being on trial for murder is just glam, 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 glam. Well, my favorite sex scene is when she like, like Willem Dafoe goes over and he's like, you called my wife to ask for me? And he barges into her like floating house. And she's like, no, I just called to see if you were there and kind of like teases him a little. Then she like masturbates until she hooks him back in to like having sex with her and like shutting up. Yeah, I like that scene a lot. (laughs) You know what I loved about that is that she masturbates a lot in a lot of the movies we watch today. Like even in Truth or Dare, she like touches herself a lot on the screen. So, you know, not an unfamiliar image by the time i saw this (laughs) i was kind of numb to it i was like okay (laughs) like that's just what she does but did you notice the soundtrack during that scene no i didn't it was like full satanic like omen music it was like (laughs) (laughs) okay well obviously i have to rewatch it and you know what it's free on tubi tv so (laughs) beautiful i'll probably watch it later but I, I just like that scene. I love how, like, when she's in public in this movie, she's very, like, not that she's timid, but, like, especially when she's dealing with the legal issues, like, Willem Dafoe speaks for her, and then she's, like, fucking tearing his ass apart <laughs> mm-hmm. in the bedroom. It's just this cool, like, shift in their relationship that happens, like, behind closed doors. A lot of it's, like, really over the top, like... Even that like champagne candle wax scene, I think, is maybe one of the only things people remember from this movie. But it's something that's been so disseminated into like the general population. Like I'm picturing like Ricky Martin in the La Vida Loca movie getting like champagne and candle wax poured on him yep. <laughs> by like two hot ladies. There's just like no sting to that. It's too ridiculous to take seriously. Which I, I find funny, but I don't find any of the, the sex scenes like particularly steamy or like actually engaging in an erotic kind of way except the parking garage scene Mm, yeah the two of them ride this elevator together it's like crowded with other lawyers into like the lower levels of a parking garage she's like touching him in the crowded elevator they're trying to keep it under wraps (laughs) and as soon as they get out she stands on top of a stranger's car and smashes out a light with her heel like her shoe and um, he goes down on her while she's standing up. And he's like laying down on like broken glass while she like sits on his face. That was pretty hot. I did not expect that to creep up on me. This is the uh, inspiration for Annie Lennox's Walking on Broken Glass song. Are you for real? I'm totally lying, Brandon. I'm sorry. Damn. <laughs> <laughs> but I feel like when that scene happened, I was, in my head, I was like, do, 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 do. It kind of played. So that's when Willem Dafoe walked on broken glass. Walked on his back. Walked on his back. (laughs) It was interesting seeing him like being sexualized. Can you think of any other movies where you see like Willem Dafoe in like such like a sexual role? Well, I think that he has like a sensuous mouth and he is like (laughs) sort of like alluring sexually just looking at him. He reminds me of like John Denver with tight bone structure. (laughs) I don't know. The two that immediately come to mind are like one of his earliest roles and is one of his more recent ones. I mean, in The Lighthouse, he is a feral animal, but he is having this like sexual experience with The Lighthouse itself. And You're right. He's literally fucking a lighthouse. <laughs> and there's a lot of like macho sexuality between him and Robert Pattinson in that movie. 
And then also in the William Friedkin movie about counterfeiting uh, with the Wang Chung soundtrack. Uh, what's that called? Uh, to Live and Die in L.A. To Live and Die in L.A. <laughs> <laughs> he is like really hot in that one, I think, too. Oh, and doesn't he in Antichrist? I have it on DVD and I bought it because I thought it was going to be a horror movie. And then people were just chopping off their like genitals and... Yeah, I don't know about that. That's as sexy as he gets. I think you see his penis. I think even when he's sexy, it's a little horrifying. And I don't think this movie's any exception. Like, Mm -mm. they're basically, like, fighting while they're fucking. You know, they're trying to handcuff each other to various pieces of furniture and, like, actually hurting each other and not, like, doing things consensually. The movie's, like, really kink misinformed in a way that makes it more ridiculous, but... I guess it's so ridiculous that I don't have to take it seriously. Kind of like a Fifty Shades of Grey kind of movie. Oh, right. It's fun. It's just like a fun movie to watch. Like, I think you're right. Like, if someone goes into it trying to make something serious out of it, they're not going to have a good time. I had a blast. I liked it a lot. I would say it's one of my favorite, like, thrillers that I've ever seen. Wow. I love that. (laughs) (laughs) Well, because there's a lot of good twists in it. And, like, I didn't guess the truth till it happened. Then you know the truth? before you saw the truth i didn't necessarily see where it was going but once it happens i was a little let down because it's very like moralistic in the last like 30 seconds but i don't really care about how the movie ends to be honest like i had so much fun by the time i got there that i didn't really think about much about what it was saying just never trust madonna <laughs> well if you have sex a lot and you're like a sexually liberated woman who's into like snm you're going to be punished uh, eventually oh yeah absolutely <laughs> it's a cautionary tale for those types of ladies <laughs> so the other movie we watched was from 1993 as well so the other movie we watched the the name of it is dangerous game but What's so funny is it was released in Japan as Body 2. Like, it was a sequel of Body of Evidence, but it is in no way (laughs) related to Body of Evidence. It's a completely different movie, a completely different cast. The only two things they have in common is that they're sort of sexy, and they both have Madonna in it. That's it. Totally. Body of... Sorry. (laughs) So what's it called? Body 2. Dangerous Game. Dangerous Game is this movie... Within a movie, which I thought of you whenever I was like watching this too. And when I was thinking of like recommending it, because I know you like movies about movies and movies about Hollywood and filmmaking. There's a director named Eddie played by Harvey Keitel. And the director of this film is Abel Ferrara. And he likes having Harvey Keitel in his movies. So Harvey Keitel is a director and he's making this movie about this young husband and this young wife played by Madonna and they have like a failing marriage and like their marriage is very like violent and like just horrible where the husband in this marriage within this movie is played by James Russo. So like I know James Russo has been in a lot of movies but the only other film that I like really remember him having a huge role in is the movie Extremities. So in Extremities, he is a rapist. I've probably seen Extremities more than any other person in the world because my cousin, who I lived with for a very long time, that was his favorite movie and he would constantly watch it. But it's basically a movie where Farrah Fawcett almost gets raped and then she finds the guy that was going to rape her and then she kidnaps him and tortures him. Jesus. And it's James Russo. And in this movie, he's also a rapist. He's also a rapist. (laughs) I'm like, oh, God, like, this is his thing. Like, he's just a very 
violent husband towards Madonna's character in the film where Madonna, her character in the film that's being filmed in this movie is like this religious wife where she had like a kind of wild past and she found religion and um, her husband is sort of angered at her for that where it's like, you know, where is this woman that I married that liked to party and have fun and now you're like this hypocritical religious fiend. So that's kind of what the the movie is about that's being filmed. And then off camera, the actors sort of have unhealthy relationships. And Harvey Keitel is having similar, kind of similar marital issues where his wife isn't living with him while he's working. And he's having this like fling with Madonna. So his lead actress, he starts sleeping with her and it turns out that he does this a lot. And then he confesses to his wife. So he tells his wife, yeah, I've been cheating on you with multiple women and the current actress in this movie. And I'm sorry, your dad just died, but I need to tell you this. Like his wife's dad died and he tells her this like a few minutes after, um, so he's kind of having those these like marital issues while he's trying to portray that in his film. So yeah, it basically follows that. And uh, Madonna doesn't have like she has a prominent role in this movie, but you don't get as much Madonna as you did with Body of Evidence. But the thing with like Madonna in this movie is that her acting is like phenomenal where yeah like I liked body of evidence and I liked her acting in there but it was okay but she like does a a, a fantastic job of acting in this movie she's almost got like an Elizabeth Moss like woman on the edge of a breakdown kind of vibe here which seems like way beyond what she should be able to pull off yes yes like there's this scene that I love in this movie where she's getting high with all of her castmates. And then she's like talking about like getting a tampon to like hold all of the shit that she deals with, with like all of in her love life and the bullshit that men bring. (laughs) And she's like putting that like in comparison to like an extra wide flow of shit and stupidity. And I don't know. I love that scene a lot. She feels more real in here than she does in truth or dare sometimes. Exactly. It's kind of shot in the same way where it's like, supposed to feel candid where you know it's not her acting it's her just being relaxed behind the scenes and there's like this like camcorder kind of footage of her like almost like a sex lies and videotape right shot on video interviews and yeah it comes across like really authentic and kind of blurs the line between is she acting or is she just kind of hanging out on set and they're using that footage to like portray the character right like it's it's bizarre like it's hard to determine like when she's acting when she isn't because she's acting so well. But yeah, so I mean, the movie is essentially that. It's about a movie being made and the process in which that movie is being made. And there is like one part, it's like a movie within a movie within a movie, where like in the movie they're filming, there's like footage that they're watching of like Madonna being like, you know, her, her truth or dare self. And it's within the movie being filmed within the movie. And it's wild. So I did want to touch on that. I thought it was cool. And there's another meta layer too, where like Harvey Keitel is basically playing an Abel Ferrara type and like Madonna is playing a Madonna type. And the movie can be really gross and horrifying watching him abuse 
her in that dynamic. Right. But in the same way, it feels like the movie's documenting like April Ferrara actually antagonizing Madonna to get like, you know, a real performance out of her. Exactly. Yeah. Like there are those horrible moments where it's like this director is abusing his actors because he's trying to like get something out of them that he wants. And like, yeah, like you can see that the actual director of the film is putting that on the director, the actor director in the movie. Ugh, it's it's wild. So, yeah, well, well, how did you like this movie? What are your thoughts on it? I'm a little frustrated by this one because, you know, if Madonna wants to be a good actor and that's like what she was trying to do here, I think she really pulled it off in this movie in a way that she doesn't anywhere else I've seen from her. Mm-hmm. Like this is her in like real full on dramatic actress mode. You know, it's not like Desperately Seeking Susan where she's just so cool and that's what you're watching on screen. It's like actually giving a performance. Like a human performance. Like, yeah, like just being a, a normal human being. She's not an enigma mm-hmm. here. She's like something really raw. But unfortunately, the movie is more about Abel Ferrara than it is about her. Mm-hmm. And it concludes, I think, with a clip of, um, or at least somewhere towards the end, there's a clip of Burden of Dreams, the Herzog movie we watched. Yes. the making of um, Fitzcarraldo. Trying to get that boat to go over the mountain. Yeah, and it feels like a very, like, self-serving, even if it is, like, self-flagellating, like, he's, like, you know, saying I'm a piece of shit, and I abuse the people I work with to get, like, you know, good art, quote-unquote, out of them, and is that morally worth it, you know, considering the movies I make? I mean, that's all self-obsessed gobbledygook, eventually, and I, mm-hmm. I was much more interested in the performance that she was giving than I was in Harvey Keitel's, you know, Abel Ferrara surrogate, and... I don't know. There's just like so many scenes of like her being abused on camera and then like Harvey Keitel yelling in her face that she's a commercial piece of shit, which feels like Abel Ferrara antagonizing her by proxy. That was a really difficult scene to watch because like you think it would stop after like the first round of that, but it keeps going and going. Like, I feel like that scene was like double the length it should have been. It's like Hootie Tootie Disco Cutie and Greasy Strangler. Like it just goes on for minutes on end. And yeah, I just kind of got grossed out by it in general where I was like, if Steven Soderbergh had made this movie and it was like actually a movie about celebrity and like really playing with her screen presence as strange as it is in an interesting way, like this might've been like, an all-timer like one of her greatest roles but as it is it feels like this very masturbatory movie about Abel Ferrara and I just found it kind of gross and I just wanted it to be better because I I thought she she did a really great job here under really shitty circumstances it sucks because this movie didn't come out that much after Body of Evidence did and she received horrible criticism for her performance in Body of Evidence so she was kind of dismissive of this movie before it came out and feedback was given and people actually liked her in it and it just sucks i don't know i felt bad for her as like a performer in this movie she was so good but the film didn't like i don't know do a good job of like making use of how good she was i kind of agree in the abstract because obviously she wants to be this like movie star on top of being like a pop star and she like wanted to be treated seriously as an actor. So it sucks that this opportunity that would have been like a really good calling card for her, it was kind of squandered before it got started, you know, right. And this could have been like a real opening for her to do more serious acting work. And it kind of sucks that it tanked in that way. Mm -hmm. But at the same time, like 
she's fine. Like, she is a millionaire. She'll be fine for the rest of her life. And you know what? She's going to start in Evita later on down the road and blow the socks <laughs> off of everybody. And she gets to mess around with Antonio Banderas in it. So her life's finally. good. Yeah, finally. <laughs> and she has all those like pop records to lay back on and, you know, still making them. Like you said, the Madame X tour was not that long ago. Right. The only good that could have come of this really in a practical sense is that Abel Ferrara could have been rewarded for being such an asshole. <laughs> and I, I really am glad that didn't happen because I, I find this movie kind of gross um, on like a moral level mm-hmm. <laughs> in a way that I think that he knows that he's doing it, but that doesn't make it any better. It's kind of like a Lars von Trier. Yes. Provocateur kind of thing that I find, I don't know, just not very exciting. Especially like the rape scene that happens in it. So gross. It's so difficult to watch. And it's so bizarre because like you can tell that like as the rape scene is happening, like on set, the cast and crew are like mortified because there's something more to it than just acting, you know? It's also just odd because that actor who's supposed to be the more serious dramatist that she's like bouncing off of is terrible in this movie. Like he just yells like his version of acting is just abusive yelling. I have to be drunk to play a drunk. (laughs) So I'm going to be an asshole. I need to rape you to simulate that I'm raping you on camera uh, it's horrible and i think like this movie was banned i think in ireland probably in other countries too because of that rape scene and i want to say that it was it had a rated r rating because it was initially taken out and then now that the version is like available it's nc-17 fun stuff right i don't think i could like really recommend anyone digging this up if they haven't already seen it like this is not some lost, like, masterwork from gritty New York City filmmaker Abel Ferrara. This is, like, some gross, self-serving thing he did. And he, like, kind of right. used Madonna to get this out of a system. And I, I just really couldn't... I'm frustrated by it. Like, I want to like it because she's so good in it. But the more I dwell on it, the more angry I get about it. Her performance is great. But that's it. Yeah. Yeah, whatever. Like, I was, like, picking movies. I, I, I don't think I saw this, like, extended version with all these different scenes. Like I remember, I want to say I saw this on like television or wow. I rented. I don't remember, but I had like blurred images of it. And I just remember like Madonna having like those like close up camera moments where she kind of like was talking behind the scenes and how like lovely that was. And I was like, Oh yeah, that'd be really cool to watch. <laughs> when I watched it. I, nah. I mean, I'm glad we watched it for this conversation. I think it really, you know, colored a lot of, and things for me. I didn't know that it was considered um, a body of evidence sequel in Japan. So right. isn't that weird? Like the universe works in mysterious ways whenever we select movies for our episodes. <laughs> and it was good contrast for Truth or Dare as like a behind the scenes glimpse of like her at her most natural. I think right. as horrible as Abel Ferrara's impulses are here, like he really does capture something about her that we don't normally get to see. Um, how much of that is performance and how much is real, we'll never know. But I, I think it is like a new texture to her. Mm-hmm. And it has the same kind of vibe as Truth or Dare, that like sort of handheld camera. Yeah. Sort of sneaking in her like private moments. Yes. That like grainy behind the scenes footage. That's so fun to watch. Yeah. And so it's like kind of halfway between the erotic thriller aspects of Body of Evidence and mm-hmm. Truth or Dare in some ways. So I think it's it's interesting with this group of movies. And obviously I think... It's clear just looking at all three of these that she was like a huge fan of movies. Like 
this is like a genuine impulse from her to want to be involved with filmmaking. Mm-hmm. She sought out working with Ferrara because she watched Harvey Keitel and Bad Lieutenant. And she was like, oh, I want to work with those people. And she like sought this project out the same way that she wanted to, you know, seek out Antonio Banderas when she watched all those Almodovar movies or the way she like loves to dress up like Marilyn Monroe or Marlena Dietrich in her music videos. Right. This is like a real cinephile it just sucks that she ruthlessly gets made fun of for like trying to be involved in movies as if like that's not allowed. So I don't know. I've only gained more respect from her from watching these movies. Like, Yay! I already loved her going in, but like it just really solidified me kind of respecting her as an artist. And you know, she's also a children's book author. I did not know that. Uh, I want to say like about 10, 12 years ago, she wrote a children's book about, it was called like the... The English Roses. That was the name of it. So yeah, she just keeps doing all kinds of stuff. You never know what's next. Keep your eye out. And I think that is part of her like image control. It's like she wants to be perceived as like an adaptable person that will, you know, constantly have something new and exciting and image subverting to like surprise us with as time goes on. And, you know, so far it's worked out pretty well. Like she's been around my entire life literally and she's not going anywhere anytime soon so it doesn't really seem like it no but but i do think that this era of her was like something really special like i think she was like tapping into something really potent i think that this era built her into the madonna that everyone sees today like prior to she was very like pop princessy like even though like a virgin is a pretty you know racy song It kind of didn't seem that way, but, like, as she goes into, like, this era of, like, the 90s, she starts to, you know, sing these songs with, like, her lower register when she sings. Like, she's got her deep sexual voice out instead of this, like, high-pitched material girl voice in her music. And, like, her image is, like, it's a little darker. It's more powerful. Yes forceful yeah like she just kind of like owning her sexuality and herself and i think like when you think about madonna you think about like or i think about that i think of her with her high blonde ponytail and her pointy tits with her you know mouthpiece coming off of a stage you know that's how i see like when the minute the moment i say the words madonna that's the image that comes to mind and it's from her like blonde ambition era yeah i think you know truth or dare really is like a smart move from her like if she is going to have a concert tour documentary you know capturing a moment in her career that was a really smart time to pull the trigger on that because that is such an iconic image and an iconic stretch of her work i'd love to see one like for whatever her next album's gonna be because like following her on social media you get a lot of like behind the stage footage of her like in that truth or dare style, but it's like her in like either an ice bath or like a bath of goat's milk, just like, you know, chanting weird shit (laughs) or like having her like kids singing in the background and playing with makeup and her like saying, you know, weird quotes to the screen. It's interesting and I love it. Yeah. I guess now in like the uh, reality TV, social media kind of age, like, that sort of like constant performance, whether or not you're on a stage is become more just sort of like universal. Like every star does this kind of thing. Right. This like image control. Yes. Performance thing that she got made fun of at the time. But I don't think any, I don't think any of this is like particularly special to us. Like, I don't think we're saying anything 
about Truth or Dare being good or about like what she's good at uh, that's, you know, remarkable other than I don't think many people enjoy body of evidence as much as we did. <laughs> so I think, like Maybe our biggest claim here is just that that is a good erotic thriller. Like My thing is like, if, if all these people can make all this fucking praise about fatal attraction and not like body of evidence, that's just dumb. If you like fatal attraction, you're going to love body of evidence. Don't let anyone tell you any different, right? I got to say fatal attraction made me feel bad. Body of evidence made me feel great. <laughs> a blast watching that. <laughs> and you know what the um the wife in fatal attraction is the secretary in body of evidence oh shit you're right there's that connection <laughs> this is like a neurotic thriller diva that's just like gracing the screen we didn't even know it <laughs> maybe for a future episode we can dig into her erotic thriller work <laughs> like really tie all those together oh my god i would love that and i want to be on that episode well, uh, for now, James and I will be coming back in about two weeks with an episode on the Matrix trilogy. Whoa. So we're keeping things very like mainstream and above board because it's really easy to watch that stuff right now, uh, which is something we need. Are y'all going to be watching the Animatrix? Yeah, for the first time. I don't think either of us have oh, seen wow. it. Oh, wow. That's the only one that I have on DVD. <laughs> <laughs> And uh, I also am going to post in the notes of this episode just a longer explanation of what I meant by Chicago reminding me of John Waters movies. I wrote like a longer rant about that. So if you're unconvinced by my short pitch earlier, just click <laughs> on the episode notes and just read uh, me sort of babbling about why that movie reminded me of like John Waters heroines that Divine usually plays. And we'll see y'all in a couple weeks. Yeah, We'll come back and talk about some more movies. I will still be singing Vogue over and over in my head till then, but <laughs> y'all can move on from yeah, Madonna. If I'll you just want. be like lying down on the ground singing I Live to Tell <laughs> to the ceiling. <laughs> so it'll burn inside of you. Yes. Bye, everybody. <laughs> Bye.